I saw National Treasure for the first time during lockdown. Uh, really? Yeah, I just, I it so did not interest me when it came out. Um, Fair cause enough. Because I, I was too good, like, literally because I was too good for it, I thought. Mm. Um, and then during, like, COVID, I was just like, Nick Cage doing some nonsense with Jerry Bruckheimer? Sure. that sounds fun hello and welcome to did you do your homework the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media i am your co-host and recovering illness but without covid martha mm-hmm. sullivan and i am here as always with my co-host i'm uh, pete romberg my weekend plans were derailed due to a potential covid that ended up being hopefully not good no covid so oh good yeah we were supposed to go up to the twin cities uh and then we didn't so fair enough <laughs> which also meant that this weekend i had a weird weekend where like i had nothing booked and we didn't want to go anywhere so it's like hey this is kind of nice yeah i hope you didn't tell anybody that you were staying home either you were just like nope i'm gonna stay no, we, in bed all day and watch movies we, we told people we were staying home because we were a little worried about a covid uh so fair it's enough. like so you can't have us go anywhere ha 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 those days now as an adult feel like I'm stealing them from somebody and I love them. Yeah, it's like, like what did I do this weekend? I read a lot and I went to the dog park a lot. And that was yeah, nice. The end. Yeah. Well, we are here today to talk about one of the greatest media properties of all time and also a book that Dan Brown wrote. <laughs> but before we get into that, we are going to talk about what is stuck in our heads this week. Uh, this is the piece of media that is haunting us, that we cannot get out of our heads, that we cannot stop thinking about, and we need an excuse to talk about. Have you picked one yet, Pete, or should I go first? <sighs> I don't think you going first is going to help me pick one. Um, so, <laughs> so the problem is, if we ha- it, we're recording on Wednesday... We were originally supposed to record on Monday. If we had recorded on Monday, I would have a very clear answer to this. And it is uh, Walter Isaacson's most recent book, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. Uh, this is a book that I started. It's, it's about CRISPR, which is a gene editing um, tool uh, that sort of got discovered, invented in, in 2012. Um Walter Isaacson is a great biographer, very fascinating writer. He's done biographies on uh, Da Vinci, uh, I mentioned for no particular reason, Um, Steve Jobs, (laughs) uh, a handful of others. All his stuff is very good. Uh, Einstein. Um, I had started reading this book back in February, got like 100 pages in, maybe 150, put it down, have not read any book at all. Other than audiobooks, we've talked off-air about how audiobooks are reading. I mean, I haven't physically read a book since then. Um, Because I had nothing to do all weekend, I read, like, 150 pages of this book, and I'm, like, right back in. I'm I'm closing in on the end. uh, And it just absolutely sucked me in. Um, However, since Monday, I have started watching Apple TV's Severance. Very good, I'd recommend. Uh, And I have discovered the music of Muna, or possibly Muna. Um, Silk Chiffon is their big hot single. Uh, they're sort of, it's it's a trio of queer women. Uh, it is 
uh, fun pop music. Most of their stuff is actually a little more down-tempo, more like a Phoebe Bridgers stuff. Um, they're signed to Phoebe Bridgers' record label, uh, but their, their single that's popping that came out in December or November of last year uh, is not like the rest of their stuff, and it is just, it's going to be the jam of the summer. I'm calling it now. Uh, that's Silk Chiffon by Muna. So yeah, I did get all how three you, in. <laughs> how do you spell Muna? M-U-N-A. Okay, that's I, what I thought. They I, sound like someone I dig. Yeah, I think you would really like them. Excellent. Uh, so what has stuck in my head is a book that I actually just finished earlier today. It is a novella, which I'm very into right now, uh, called This Is How You Lose the Time War. Ooh, I've heard of that. Max Gladstone and Amal El Motar. And to call it a time travel book is reductive, um, but it does, it is about two agents on opposing sides of a time war. Um, both of them are from different futures that are incompatible. So they are both representing their, um, their futures as they travel in between like different time streams um, setting up events in such a way that will tilt the, um, like tilt like the, the, balance the balance towards the future that they come from. It's like a cold. It's a time travel cold war situation. Well, sort of. The thing is that they start leaving each other letters mm. because they are both the best at what they do. Sure, taunting letters so, at first, maybe. At first, uh huh, and then maybe um, romantic letters as it goes on. So I, I hesitate, I truly hesitate to tell you anything more than that because it was so, like, whatever I expected it to be, it was not that, mm -hmm. and it was nothing I ever could have, like, anticipated. It is weird and beautiful and, like, heartbreaking, and it takes place in a in a world where, like, Science is so advanced, it may as well be magic. Sure. So most of what happens, like, the book is not really interested in explaining to you, like, how the time travel works, because it doesn't matter. Right, like, like the, at the, the end time of the day, travel works by, they travel through time. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, there there are certain things, certain kind of preconceptions that I had when I was like, this is a time travel novel that I had to let go of because they simply did not matter mm -hmm. to the story that this book is telling. Um, but yeah, it alternates between the letters that they are writing to each other and the circumstances under which they each write those letters Ooh. or find the letters rather. And do, um, does it play with chronology, like chronology uh, in the storytelling structure as well? Not really. Like okay. time for these two characters progresses linearly. And, and for the, the time... audience too. Yeah, yeah, but the time that the times that they are moving through do not. Right, sure. So like they are wherever they need to be in space time. Right. But they, we they are age, getting the age development. From thirty to thirty one to thirty two, and we follow them aging thirty one, thirty two, thirty three, but they're going from World War One to twenty fifty two to the Siege of Jerusalem. Whatever. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm, make, I'm making that up, but yeah. Yeah. Speak um, it's under 200 pages. Ooh. I thought it was incredible. Speaking I need more people to read it so that I can talk about it with people. <laughs> uh, I, I know what our, the, the 
the not the next episode's topic but the following episode's topic would this pair well with everything ever all at once a movie i finally got around to seeing um i guess if the angle would that we wanted to take was like how to use the multiverse to tell a different kind of story yeah but like in terms of what story they're telling they're they're both telling very different kinds of stories gotcha um like they both are multiverse stories but that is sort of where the similarities end Mm -hmm. and is this even a multiverse because it seems like these two universes can't can't coexist and the whole point of the multiverse is that everything can well they can't coexist but at the same time you do have these two characters characters that are both from their own futures so what they're trying to do is ensure that their future is the one that comes out on top okay right and now we're into details that kind of don't matter yeah yeah yeah, right and and i'm over here being like but in a proper multiverse they could both come out on top because anything is possible but this what this book presupposes is what if that's not the case and also this book presupposes that they're at war so at the end of the day, it's like... Sure, sure. <laughs> e- even if they both could coexist, they have chosen not to. Right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, but yeah, it's brilliant. Well, this this just I... got added to my, my reading queue and is probably going to get catapulted pretty close to the top. Uh... I would actually really... I don't know if they made this one an audiobook. I would be interested to see if they did, because if they did it with two different narrators, I think that would be a really interesting experience. Uh, they have made it an audiobook with two different narrators. Hey! Uh, it's, it's two I mean, women, I imagine. Does that square with yes. the, the characters? Okay, cool. Yes. There uh, are some... It's four hours and bit- 16 minutes. Okay, I'm listening to this, like, Yeah, because tomorrow. it's, like, 190 pages long. It's not even 200 pages. I'm used to, I'm used to, list, like, my fiction audiobook tends to be like the doorstop fantasies so i'm used to like 35 hour run times on on my fiction audiobooks <laughs> you'll be done with this one in two walks with ozzy uh yeah yeah basically i'll, I'll be done within a week minimum or oh, a week <laughs> maximum yeah perfect all right we are going to take a quick break and when we come back we are going to get into early aughts historical conspiracy theories I'll be right back. back so today we are talking about two are these early aughts they're early aughts one is oh three and the other is oh four so they are just they're one two punching us in the i'd call that the early aughts yes the early aughts when we were all obsessed with the illuminati hiding um mysterious clues for us on the dollar bill please introduce the first 
property that we will be discussing tonight. Uh, so the, the first book that we're doing is uh, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. It's a mystery thriller novel. It spawned a movie. Uh, you might have heard of it. It was like the second best-selling novel of 2003 behind the Harry Potter that came out that year. Um, it is the second of the Robert Langdon series of books by Dan Brown, the first of which I believe is Angels and Demons, which also got its own movie. Um, the premise is that Robert Langdon is a Harvard symbologist who is world-renowned, which is a real thing, um... And he is in Paris for a speech when the curator of the Louvre, a man named Jacques Saunier, uh, also apologies in advance for any French butchering that happens, um, uh, is murdered in the Louvre. Uh, and after he, he's gut shot and in the time it takes for him to die, he leaves a bunch of clues around uh, the Louvre for um, his daughter, who is a... French granddaughter. Granddaughter, thank you. Granddaughter, who is a French police cryptologist, uh, to or cryptographer to find, uh, but which also points to Langdon, and the police think it implicates him. Um we go through twists and turns. We learn that uh Jacques Saunier was not only in a member of a secret cult known as the Priory of Sion, but he was the grand master of this secret cult. He had been secretly training his his granddaughter to be a great cryptographer and clue finder and stuff. Uh, so they go through a bunch of twists and turns, and during this whole process, Langdon uh, mansplains to um, uh, Sophie Nouveau, who is the granddaughter, uh, in chapter after chapter about... Um, about the Priory of Sion, the Knights Templar, the secret that they discovered in Jerusalem under the ruins of the Temple of Solomon in 1099, and how it all traces back to the Holy Grail. Uh, turns out that the Holy Grail is actually Mary Magdalene and the sacred bloodline that she carries. Yes, Jesus had sex with Mary Magdalene, and they had kids. And this will overturn 2,000 years of Catholicism. Um, and rock the world to its core. Uh, the structure of the book from here on out is as follows. Um, Robert Langdon, or later on, uh, an old British dude named Sir Lee Teabing, um, explains something to Sophie. Then they either find the next clue to a puzzle, or they get chased off from wherever they're at due to gunplay, and they end up at a new location. And then either Robert Langdon or Sir Lee Teabing explains something else to Sophie. Uh, and then we come to the end of the book. Uh, so um, it is... Not only is the conspiracy part of this book ill-researched and based on and, and built on a shoddy foundation, but the non-conspiracy historical notes and even just architectural descriptions are shoddily researched and built on uh you know quicksand foundations um that being said reading this book it reads like a blockbuster it was propulsive i like i was frequently frustrated and often turning to wiki to be just like that can't possibly be true and then it wasn't uh but i did keep reading it and i could not put it down um the the writing is like at a seventh grade writing level at best. It is not well written. It is not well researched. But something about it carried me along through it. Um, 
And clearly that was the case back in 2003. I guess this is like the perfect uh, airport paperback. Because um, in 2003, everyone was reading this book. Um, it sold 8 million copies worldwide. Uh, and then Tom Hanks showed up in a uh, Ron Howard adaptation of it. Um, I dare I, you? I, I, glo- I gloss over you? all of the nonsense of this book, by the way, when I did the plot summary. How dare you forget the fact that Sophie has been estranged from her grandfather for like 15 years. Yeah. Because she saw him doing something horrible that the book does not explain to us until two thirds of the way through. And then we find out the thing that made her cut off all contact to her beloved grandfather, who is the only family that she thinks she has left, is the fact that she walked in on a weird sex ritual. Yes. Is she? she Dan walked Brown in... is a... <laughs> Dan Brown is afraid of sex. She walked in to an eyes wide shut ritualistic orgy and she was like, well, I can never speak to my grandfather ever again. Um, and it, it is. The, the ground, <laughs> the ground breaking, the ground shaking secret. When did dogma come out? Dogma? I don't know, like 9901. Yes. Definitely before this book. See? See, this is my problem with this book, of many problems. <laughs> the ground-shaking secret in this book that is supposed to, like, shake the very bones of the church yeah. is that Jesus had sex. Yeah. Uh, also, I was dead on. Dogma came out in 99. Um, the reason I bring up Dogma is because this was not a revelatory idea. No, none of the big revelations in this book were revelatory to me. And maybe that's just because, like, we're both religion minors, right? Um, yeah. So, like, I know the history of the church well enough to know that all the, like, earth-shattering stuff about the Catholic faith, I'm like, yeah, no, I mean, duh. Um, or, or it's like, if I didn't know that, I'm not surprised by it. And yet, every time it is explained to Sophie, she's like, the my mind reels! The earth is pulled out from under me! How could this possibly be true? Who would keep such a secret? Why would they go to such lengths? Um, yeah. Also, the bad guy is like, well, for most of the book, we think the bad guy is Opus Dei, a Christian sect which is just like, I don't know, it's a bunch of conservative Catholics. Whatever. Um... They, Dan Brown misunderstands or misrepresents what it means to be a personal prelature of of the Pope, like a a a personal papal prelature, uh, to make it sound way more sinister than it is. And he's trying to do a weird thing where, like, he's trying to say the Church is sinister and hiding all these secrets, and will go to any lengths to keep it hidden. But also, Langdon is frequently like, I don't know, the Church these days they wouldn't do something like that. Uh, maybe the old church would, but this church wouldn't. And it's it, it's a serious, like, having your cake and eating it to take on the Catholic Church. Dan Brown. <sighs> so I, I, I told you this uh, before the podcast, and I do have to share it. Um, Umberto Please Echo, uh, Umberto Echo, who's a big Italian author, wrote In the Name of the Rose. Uh, and he also wrote Foucault's Pendulum, a book that sort of sends up conspiracy theories that came out in the 90s. Um, And, like, Foucault's Pendulum is all about people who are obsessed with the Knights Templar and the Priory of Sion and the Freemasons and all the stuff here, symbology, yada, yada, yada. Um, Umberto Eco was asked his thoughts about this book because it was so in line with, you know, the book he had written. Um, And his quote was, like, at first he's like, I didn't want to read it. 
then so many people were asking me that I had to read it. Uh, his response was, Dan Brown is a character I made up for Foucault's Pendulum. He is, like, he is my character. And that is such an amazing scathing indictment of a living human being. Um, I I want that, like, cross-stitched on a wall somewhere, you know? <laughs> like, it's... Dan I, Brown heard the phrase Knights Templar and was like, that would make a good book. Mm-hmm. And proceeded to do no research. No, he did research on in crackpot books that have no actual, like, he misinterpreted crackpot theories, which is great. So one of the things that I wanted to discuss about this book, and I don't just want to, I don't just want us to spend our time with this book pissing all over it, even though it's horrible and it deserves it. Um, but this book was wildly popular yes. for a brief period of time. And I believe it is because it presents itself as such a statement of fact that not only is it imminently readable, but it makes you feel like you're learning something. It pulls off a con where it's like, ooh, let me tell you all of these forbidden things that I'm presenting to you as fact. And then at the end, you're like, I want to read more about these things. And it's like, oh, no. Oh, no, he made them up. <laughs> oh, no, it's not true. <laughs> Which I think is also why this book is no longer popular because all of the people who went to Barnes and Noble and were like, I want more books about the Da Vinci code. And were like, we're told that there aren't any because the Da Vinci code is, you know, we're like, you, 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 you can read like sacred, sacred blood, sacred grail or whatever that book is uh, called that he based most of his stuff on. And then it's like, you do any research whatsoever. And you're like, Oh, this, this is not a, um, this is not accepted in academic circles as having an ounce of legitimacy. <laughs> but it is presented as, even Ho so far holy blood, as holy grail, that, that's the name of the book. Even so far as like Dan Brown presenting it as such in like interviews. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and like it was a you know wildly popular book. Uh, I mean, it it's still a popular book among conspiracy theorists, and you will always find, you will always find people who are talking about how the Freemasons founded America or like we might get into in our, our next homework um, or, you know, that the Knights Templar are secretly running society or in a different and terrifying direct direction that Jews are controlling society, right? Like conspiracy theories are, and, and we, we, in my mind, like my idea behind this topic was like, we're currently living through an era of like really bad conspiracy theories, like QAnon, all the coronavirus, like anti-vax nonsense. It's, it's conspiracy theories that have, like, metastasized and rotted at the same time. But in a way, they're not dissimilar from the the fun conspiracy theories of the early aughts of, like, I don't know, Masons and Templars. And it doesn't hurt anyone. Uh, because I was both... going to say, I feel like the difference is that in the early aughts, none of us really thought that this was true. We, I, I would say that we probably didn't think it was true, but I, I do wonder if other people did. It's just like, if you learn that the Knights Templar, you know, found that Jesus, like, had a bloodline, it's like, oh, wild. Nothing to do about, like, you can't do anything with that knowledge. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, like you're, just, you're just like, you could, you can, like, be the weirder <laughs> at the cocktail party, but, like, you know... That's it. Like, hey, did you know that Jesus effed? <laughs> right. You, like, you're not going to storm, like, you know, a pizza place in D.C. thinking that, like, it's a pedophile ring. Um, 
But yeah. it's it's the same sort of idea of like there is most people are walking around with a blindfold on, but there is secret knowledge that those clever enough or smart enough or special enough to find out can find out. And if that knowledge became mainstream, it would rock the world. Um, and it helps explain why the world is as messed up as it is. Uh, and I, I think those are like such important, like commonalities of all conspiracy theories. Um, and, and it's, it's, you know, we, we can see it like here with sort of how Langdon and, uh, Sophie are treating all these conspiracy theories that they're discovering or explaining as like being earth shattering revelations. Um, and it's it's also stuff we can see now in just the absolutely like rotted, uh, monetized and cancerized version of it. Um, yeah, I miss when conspiracy <clears throat> theories got to be fun, right? I mean, like, let's go back to X Files, right? Like, alien, like, there's a UFO at Area Fifty One. That's a cool conspiracy. Well, <laughs> also, also fact. Remember, remember <laughs> when Reddit. <laughs> Stormed Area 51. Well, I mean, they didn't even, though. Like, they showed up in a bunch of, like, vans and hung out for a day and then left. Like, in, in terms of modern impact of conspiracy theories, that one's banal enough that I'm like, oh, that's fine. Um, oh, yeah. But, but, but you're right. Like, the internet has sort of supercharged all these conspiracy theories, both in terms of people, like, doing their own research and also being like, ah, so let's go there. Like... If Da Vinci Code came out now, I imagine there'd be way more people going to, like, France and going to, you know, England and trying to, quote, do their own research and researching about, like, the bloodlines of the uh, the Merovingians, which is um, very poorly researched because they did not found Paris, which is a claim that this book makes. Uh, Paris. <laughs> Paris, a city founded literally by the Gauls before Caesar done conquered them. Uh, but no, it was this the Merovingians. It was the Merovingians in the 5th century who founded it. We, <laughs> this is a book that we as adult humans chose to read. Um, but so so that that is actually a, a good example of two things I want to talk about with this book. Um, one, and I, I think I'll start with this one, is... I do think that this book and this kind of conspiracy theory, like this, obviously, like I'm, I'm now going to put aside all the QAnon Reddit, you know, directiony thing, but like a, a airport paperback book like this that like presents as being like big conspiracy theories, unravel the mystery, all the rest of it, absolutely falls apart in the age of Wiki. Because what would happen is I would read an absurd claim like the Merovingians founded Paris, which is a throwaway line in the book, and I'd be like, that's not true. And then I'd I'd Google Merovingian. I'd be like, no, that's not true at all. Um, and like that instant, like undermining of statements presented as fact in the book just deflates so much of the excitement. Um, the one that struck out to me was talking about the gnomon at uh, Saint Sulpice, uh, the um, uh, the church where Silas uh, the and. We can get into Silas, the albino monk, who is treated like his childhood is treated like he's in the Middle Ages as he's like, you know, the nice people in Nice and Marseille are like a devil child who with white skin and red eyes. It's like, dude, you're living in 1970. What? Um, 
that's my aside on him. Um, but like he goes to Sansal Peace because he thinks the mystery leads there, and he finds this like gnomon, which is a, a basically a sun shadow device. Um, and it's treated as like, oh, it's a pagan line. It leads up to like an Egyptian obelisk. All this stuff. It's like this was built there in 1720 by the priest of the church at the time. There is nothing nefarious and there's nothing pagan about it other than, yeah, people like obelisks. It's a popular style. And in 1723, it was a pretty popular style, uh, or at least like for for this thing. Um, so when you're reading in the book that it's like got all these pagan connotations and then you wiki it and you're like, no, nah, none of that oh, is like immediately you're like, none of that is true. Um, it just it takes all the like we're removing the scales from your eyes aspect of of the book away and you're just like oh it's a well plotted but poorly written and poorly researched mystery book cool got it yeah i have nothing to add to that i think this book is trash and i'm glad that we don't really talk about it anymore (laughs) um i do want to point out just because i am who i am um you you pointed out some of the the ableism inherent in this book Mm -hmm. um this book is also dripping with misogyny um, because you, you don't even, say even for experts, even even for an expert in her field, Sophie Nouveau somehow needs things explained to her by men all the time. Fifty percent um, of the chapters in this book are one of two men explaining things to Sophie. Yes. And like and the chapter is three pages long and it is a monologue. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to the point where Langdon solves a puzzle and Sophie is like, I should have seen that. And I'm yeah. like, mm, I, cool. I, I will say, like, <laughs> Langdon is obviously like a Gary Sue, uh, Gary Stu. Um, but he also weirdly disappears for large swaths of this book as an as a person with any agency. Um like for for most of the middle section of this book, he's just hanging around and telling Sophie things. And it's, it is a very weird construct of a book where your ostensible main character, like takes an absolute backseat. Here's my question to you. Who in this book has agency? Um, Jacques Saunier from the grave. Right. And I will also say, um, Sir Lee Teabing, because, spoiler for this old book that you've definitely read, he turns out to also be the bad guy. He does have agency, but he's frequently written without agency because we have to hide the fact that he's the one, you know, controlling all the strings. Um, by the end, you can look and like knowing that that was the twist already rereading this. I'm just like. Uh, we're like you're cleverly obfuscating things but you're doing it in a way of like i can't lie so i'm going to tell a half truth and if you know what the truth is it is clear what the half truth is but if you don't then you're like oh shocking twist at the end um but i mean it is truly kind of a bizarre experience to read a book where it's like none of the characters feel like they're making any active decisions. Right, they they go from place to place, frequently because they're chased from one point to the next point, or because they're following the riddle to the next location. Um, it's it's a treasure hunt book. Uh, 
and, where the treasure is that Jesus had sex. Yeah. Uh, and and Sorry. also that... <laughs> I, I still, I truly cannot get over the fact that he was like, this will be earth shattering. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't even think about dogma. That's such a good point. <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm thinking about it. And I, I think in dogma, the idea was that Mary and Joseph continued to bone after they gave birth to, or after Mary had jesus but still it's it's kind of the same and idea like I, these sacred figures had sex i oh, no. i know that the i don't think the catholic church agrees with that line but i'm pretty sure i'm quite certain they don't I, well like i mean I, like the the like the immaculate birth required mary to be a virgin before giving birth to jesus but i think that a lot of protestant denominations are like and then after that she had relations with her husband duh um i don't because they were married right and like james is the brother of jesus in in many there's good interpretation that james is the brother of jesus um yeah and and i, I actually don't this, remember if catholic this, canon which way it goes but all of this just sort of leans into the fact that as a big revelation this one sucks yeah and and doubly so because it's like what can you do with this knowledge? Um, basically nothing. Like it's yeah. it's not like like and Brown plays it up to be like it will shatter, you know the the power of the church. It's like what power of the church? It's the year two thousand three. Like they're they're a large religious denomination, but they're fading and they don't have any you know. Like faith faith is is much more personal these days. There's no, you know. The, the, there, there's no rank popery going on, uh, you know, controlling the strings behind things, excommunicating kings or whatever. Um, it's it's a very different world where destroying the power of the church would have dramatic repercussions. Don't get me wrong, but like, it wouldn't rock civilization to its core. All right, we have to move on. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> All right. So speaking of when conspiracy theories were fun, <laughs> in 2004, Jerry Bruckheimer released, not Jerry Bruckheimer, that's yeah. wrong. Uh, Bruckheimer produced it. Uh, Turtle Tob directed yeah, it. Yeah, Bruckheimer. Yes. Jerry Bruckheimer released into the world a movie called National Treasure, starring Nicolas Cage as benjamin franklin gates <laughs> just chew on that for a little bit i uh, love it swirl diane it around kruger, diane kruger as abigail chase justin bartha as riley pool sean bean as ian howe john voight as patrick gates harvey Keitel uh, 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 as agent uh, uh, uh. sadowski patrick henry gates okay that part's not in the imdb cast list but <laughs> thank you for the correction it is very important it's on the wiki page <laughs> Uh, Christopher Plummer as John Adams Gates. Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then a whole bunch of other people. Uh, National Treasure is about uh, Ben Gates, who is investigating a family legacy, which is following a mystery of a lost Templar treasure that was hidden, that was so large that the founding fathers hid it somewhere in order to keep it away from the clutches of the British. 
The movie opens with him cracking one of the long-standing clues uh, in the company of Sean Bean, uh, who is part of his team to uh, to solve the mystery. Uh, but because this is a Sean Bean movie, <laughs> things go south pretty quick. Um, they discover uh, at the site of a recovered ship that the clue to that the next clue to the treasure is on the back of the Declaration of Independence. As, uh, as you inspiring, do. As you do. Uh, inspiring essentially a race to see who can foolhearted, foolishly try and steal this very important document first. Uh, Nick Cage and Jason, Justin Bartha um, have to fool Diane Kruger in order to get close to it. She discovers what they're doing as they're on their way out with the document. She is apprehended by Sean Bean. Um, and then we have a race to the finish line uh, as we uncover a series of historically important and deeply American clues that lead one by one to indeed a giant treasure. <laughs> Uh, hidden by the Knights Templar. John Voight at some point shows up as Ben Gates's jaded father, who's like, there is no treasure, it's just clue after clue after clue, but he has enough of his familial whimsy left to join the hunt uh, by the end, and also he gets kidnapped by Sean Bean to use as leverage, so, you know, It's a combination of he gets interested and then he doesn't have a whole lot of choice. (laughs) Right. Uh, they made a sequel to this movie, which I've never seen, but should. Um, Apparently the sequel goes to places like Paris and London and has something to do with like the Confederacy. I don't know. Which honestly makes me like makes me less excited about it because one of the things I love about National Treasure is how quintessentially American it is. Like, yeah. And what, <laughs> what, one of the things I... I want to I want to talk about with both this and Da Vinci Code is um we live in an era where the liberal arts are not particularly well respected and so many people don't have a deep or shallow but broad knowledge of history and this movie like so on the one hand I'm worried that people will learn their history through things like National Treasure or the Da Vinci Code which is just going to lead to a bad idea of history But also, this plays like a, okay, what does an 8th grader know about American history? Cool, we're gonna play those hits. Um, Because that's what we can assume our audience will, like, follow us on. Um, And on the one hand, that's fun, and I'm with you. I love the fact that it's, like, it's it's the the greatest hits of the American Civil War. (laughs) Um, And and we're not going, we're we're going a little bit deeper, but not that much deeper than that. and it, it does lose its sheen a little bit when we are also going to Paris and London and, and globetrotting. Um, yeah, it feels it feels not more authentic, because I think one of the strengths of National Treasure is that it is not presenting itself as, like, an authentic piece no. of historical mystery. It's like, no, this is an adventure story. This is, this this is, is Indiana Jones in, in, like, 2004 Philadelphia. Yes. Like, I I am quite sure that somebody did read, like, an eighth grade textbook 
but also nobody is trying to pass off these things as like writ fact like they they read an eighth grade textbook to be like ah there's one lantern that's like the lantern in the church clock tower that uh, you know paul revere saw and then someone else can be like oh but there were two lanterns whoa so you lied to him whoa uh and i think one of the one of the pros to that that i don't think dan brown ever considered is that then that also means that watching this movie does not feel like it's giving me homework i'm very i would be uh, actually on the one hand, I'm like, I would kind of be okay if this movie gave more homework in the sense of, boy, would I like people to know more about American history than what this movie represent like presents. But on the other hand, I don't think I want this movie to be a vehicle for anyone's knowledge of history because the the blurring of fact and fiction would just get so messed up that um I'm very well, I'm very movie... much okay with it being like Ben Franklin invented stuff. Great. That's what you need to know. Yeah, and this movie is not inviting you to, like, parrot its facts later at a dinner party. No, if you did, people would be like, oh, you saw that Nick Cage movie? <laughs> that, yes. That, that Disney Jerry Bruckheimer movie? But coming, it's okay. coming out around the same time as Pirates of the Caribbean? Like, I, I truly don't understand why um, Da Vinci Code felt like it had to take itself so seriously. Like, National Treasure is just like... We're having fun. You you want to hear my, my theory on that one? Yes, I do. Okay, so National Treasure knows that its premise is inherently ridiculous, and it has a lot of comedy to it. Uh, but it also has... It, it, it has the benefit of having actors, like, especially like mm-hmm. Nick Cage, uh, who... And, and even, like, I liked Sean Bean in this a lot. He was very oh, fun. Yeah. Um, everyone knew what movie they were in. Uh, the... The assistant guy. Riley. Riley. Um, he knew exactly what movie he was in. Uh, <laughs> and, and was great in it. Uh, and all of that means that you have characters that are like, they're all two dimensional characters. But Da Vinci Code, everyone is a one dimensional character. There is no I don't know if Dan Brown can write. And like, I mean, I, I've only ever read Da Vinci Code, so I don't want to necessarily like disparage Dan Brown as an author. But like. In the Da Vinci Code, all of his characters are literally one-note exposition machines or exposition intakers. And so there's no room for comedy. There's no room for levity because the entire purpose of the book is we're going on a treasure hunt. We need to explain the next step of the treasure. We need an obstacle to prevent us from getting it. Next chapter. Um, And so there's no room for that, like taking the wind out of anything because that's that's beyond what the, that's beyond the parameters of the book and it almost feels like the da vinci code was afraid that if it let if it let itself be funny or if it let anybody be like humorous that it would undercut the like gravity of the story i i, I will say which is absurd I, I will say going on a treasure hunt for like templar treasure beneath like you know, in Philadelphia and sealing the Declaration of Independence is a kind of thing that you can have fun with. Whereas if you're trying to present a book where you're like, I'm going to shake the foundations of Christianity, you might not want that levity. Like, I can see why. I think he. 
I th- I think that that purpose is a flaw. I I agree, but I think that comes back to the critique we both had of just like this is a bad mystery. Like this is a bad um holy grail if you would. Like it, it, it's a bad premise for it to be the thing that we're searching for. Like a bunch of treasure yes. you know like Ending ending your movie with a mummy-esque treasure room is more fun than ending your movie with, like, some documents and the revelation that uh, Sophie is related to Jesus. Yeah, because at that point I was seriously like, who cares? <laughs> right. We're all related to Jesus. Well, and, like, and that Mary Magdalene's tomb is under the Louvre. It's like, oh, that's cool. Who cares? <laughs> I, I also, can't. I can't buy a Ferrari with this. So, uh, <laughs> or sorry, also, I, I, I can't buy a Ferrari with one tenth of this. <laughs> what is the likelihood of a Middle Eastern woman being laid to rest in Paris? Oh no, that, that's all point. She got moved around. Like, and and in in the oh, book, it, in the book, it explains she flees uh, from. Uh, uh, galilee to uh modern day marseille which is totally reasonable because roman empire um and then so she died in in france that that part like the the fact that we're like trucking her coffin around for two thousand years less likely the part that (laughs) the part that like a jewish woman from galilee died in uh you know southern france entirely possible I hate this book. <laughs> no, but we're talking national treasure. We're which, talking which, about national which treasure. Which you, I be, I, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I believe you unabashedly love. I truly love this movie. And I, I, tepid, movie, I tepidly love it. This movie knows exactly what it's doing. True. It knows exactly who its audience is. And also, it knows exactly how to use its assets. like the, Mostly Nick Cage and his chest hair. Truly, like one of the things that you get when you get Nick Cage is is utter sincerity in the role that you ask him to play. So like he has he has a kind of earnestness and honesty in this character that is comparable to the earnestness with which Chris Evans made us all fall in love with Captain America. Mm-hmm. Like he he is playing it straight and he is playing it sincere in a way that makes a lot of what could have been ridiculous come across as like endearing and fun. Yeah. And I, I don't think, I don't think there are a lot of people who could have played it that way. I, cause there are a I lot of ways that that role. I would struggle <laughs> to cast this role as anyone other than him and have this movie work. Um, and also pairing him with Jason Bartha, who the whole time has a very strong air of like, well, I guess we're doing this. <laughs> I'm not being paid enough for this. Oh, you're not paying me at all. Well, gosh, he's dang. a very good is a very good contrast, and also lets the audience have their measure of like, okay, we all know that this is a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, he does such a good job as like the audience audience surrogate, like mugging for the camera, cracking the jokes, um, while at the same time, it, it like. The movie is funny because he's cracking all these jokes, but it's also funny because Nick Cage is an insane human being in this. So, like, even with just Cage, it's a funny movie because of what he's doing. And then there's actual jokes that are getting, like, cracked by the comedic 
guy, you know, and to whom Cage is playing the straight man, um, which is very fun dynamics. Um, I I don't always love what they do with Diane Kruger. Oh, um, do, but I do think you think that the that... one woman in this movie is ever so slightly underwritten? Yes, I do. Uh-huh. Um, and part of that is probably because it is a 2004 movie produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. Oh, do you think that um, Kira Knightley is a slightly underwritten character in Pirates of the Caribbean 1? Absolutely in the first one, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're being facetious, but... <laughs> um. Um, honestly, my biggest objection to the way they use Diane Kruger is it was utterly unnecessary for there to be any sort of romantic subplot between her and Nicolas Cage. Like, I, I didn't like it when they kissed. I didn't need it. Especially because, like, the on the one hand, it's a 2004 Jerry Bruckheimer movie. She's ending up with one of the two male characters. It's not going to be the comedic sidekick. So Nick Cage it is. Um... On the other hand, her, like, third interaction with him ever is his dad being like, what'd he do, knock you up? Which, yes. like, that, <laughs> and that, and that is word for word, um, which would be a pretty good red flag in general to be like, hmm, maybe I'm not, no matter how charming you are, uh, or no matter how many George Washington election buttons you gift me, uh, <laughs> um, this ain't gonna work out. Well, and I liked that Nick's Nick Cage's response to that was, "If I had, would you keep her standing outside?" <laughs> right, which is a <laughs> like, good what joke. What is happening? <laughs> uh, yeah, that I actually I really liked that response. <laughs> um, because like it worked in this movie, it would not work in real life, but in this movie, it worked very well. Yes. But again, I can't think of any actor other than a cage to deliver that line and make it work. Anyone else saying that, you're just like, ugh, that's gross. The other thing this movie has, which I, any movie that has this is automatically like a solid B for me, is a heist explainer where one person explains why it's impossible to steal this thing because it's under 800 layers of like tech, and then they figure out how to do it. Like, and the other person is like, but what if, but this what if thing? we do this the instead? Has to sputter a little bit and then go, well, yeah, I mean, I guess. Yes. Yeah, I, that, <laughs> uh, that, that is the first option. And the second option is the Ocean's Eleven of like, we're going to walk you through how we've already done it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like if, if you if you load up in if, if at any point in your movie, you're like, here's why this is impossible to steal. And then one of the two other options of how you're either going to steal it or how you've already stolen it. I'm like, great, this is a solid B movie. What else does a movie need? I love a heist. Yes. We should do heist movies as a topic at some point. I, there's almost the no it, heists. There's there's almost <laughs> no there's almost no uh, like meat to this bone. But <laughs> the art of the heist. Why do we think that these two things had such a moment? Because like they did come out very, very close to each other, which speaks to me, which says to me that there was some sort of cultural moment happening that kind of produced this sort yeah. of material. Yeah, National Treasure was in production, um, uh, started production in early 99. Uh, so like it wasn't it wasn't writing uh, Da Vinci Code's coattails in, in any meaningful way. Um other than like getting able to hype up, up on it. Uh 
I do think that it was maybe, and I'm I'm being very loosey goosey here. The '90s were a conspiracy decade, and the X Files is a good like exemplary of that. But those conspiracy theories were like shadowy government um, operatives keeping things under wraps. I think because of both this and Da Vinci Code, the the early aughts were more of like the Freemason Templar Illuminati conspiracy theory. Um, the, I mean, but the, that's still that I would say that still falls under shadowy government keeping things under wraps. It it, it has less government. I, I I guess both this and Da Vinci Code have less government agents trying to keep it under control like harvey Keitel in this movie never cares about keeping the treasure a secret he's like you stole the declaration i gotta get some someone's gotta go to jail uh that's what he cares about um in a in a 90s movie i think that he would be like you can never reveal the location of the templar's treasure because i'm a templar myself or like a freemason or whatever oh man um, what a twist i i literally so I've, I've only seen this movie twice and both of it like you know the first time was during lockdown and i definitely thought that at one point Kaitel was going to be like i'm a freemason this knowledge can't come out um and that would have been that would have been a 90s movie twist but in the aughts it was like the government took a back seat to like long lost buried treasure that has been forgotten. Not that it's being actively um, suppressed. But like, like Da Vinci Code, like it's forgotten. It's remembered by the small cabal who remember it and they're choosing not to divulge, but they're not like, you know, killing people to keep it secret. Well, the, I mean, Opus Day is I mean, trying to, but like that's it's, again, it's say. it's a different like uh, uh, to to me that's a different feel because it's like he's not doing it to keep it secret; he's doing it to get the power himself. The 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 bishop guy. Know. Also, every time you see keep it, every time you say keep it secret, the golem in my head goes keep it, keep safe. it safe, or the 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 Gandalf in your head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I, I think at the end of the day, what it comes down to is that our post 9-11 conspiracy world was less like because after 9-11, the government couldn't be the shadowy conspiracy keepers, the bad guys, because the government was the good guys uh, until we all learned that jet fuel couldn't melt steel beams. Um, so in in that window of like the government's the good guys, but we still like conspiracy theories. So what do we have? Oh, Ancient conspiracy theories by Masons, Illuminati, Templar, and for the wackos, the lizard people who live under the earth. Cool. Um, those are all fun. Mostly banal, but exciting. We can do our own research. And, uh, you know, doesn't hurt anyone, doesn't detract from our great war on terror, uh, but makes us all think like we're a little bit smarter in the ways of the world um, kind of stuff. That's my uh, off-the-cuff psychoanalyzing of America in 2001 to 2006. I buy it. Cool. I think that that's going to put a lid on that. I think so, too. Fantastic. Um, how do we close this show? <laughs> Well, you can either start with our next episode's topic and homework, uh, which we actually never talked about uh, what the homework specifically was going to be, uh, or oh, you can... Oh, because we know what the homework is going to be. Well, so I have, I have my guess, episode. but... 
So for our next episode, we are doing a character study deep dive uh, because my birthday is in a week and this Woo-hoo. is what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> we are and, going and, to... And it took no effort to get me on board. Absolutely not. We are going to be looking, we are going to be taking a deep dive into the culturally iconic character, Hannibal Lecter. The homework is roughly as much Hannibal content as you can consume. So for the casual listener, that would be the films Manhunter, Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, Red Dragon, and optional Hannibal Rising. Spoiler, not gonna watch that. <laughs> I'm I'm not I'm it's... not I'm not gonna watch that. <laughs> I am gonna talk about it though. That's, so just that's like read, fair. A, read a wiki summary or something. And, and feel free to spoil away because I'm just not gonna watch that one. Uh, and then we also have the TV show. And then if anybody is feeling real ambitious, there are also novels to every single one of those movies i um, i would thoroughly recommend consuming ha 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 uh at the very least manhunter silence of the lambs and an episode or two of hannibal because that gives us three different actors portraying him in different iconic ways uh and i know that it's not a hopkins in hannibal rising but again Uh, and I, I love Red Dragon, so I'm not trying to shade on Red Dragon, but uh, I want to I want to, you know, throw um, Brian Cox a little love over here. Sure. Um, yeah, so that's the homework. We're going to be digging into the hows and whys of Hannibal Lecter, how he came to capture the pop culture, pop cultural imagination. Um, yeah, what these what these different actors are bringing to uh and adding to this character happy birthday to me <laughs> uh we, we I, we're laying out a scrumptious feast uh in <laughs> honor of martha's birthday and nothing here is vegetarian <laughs> there there will be none of these jokes in the episode oh that's a lie i'm a co-host of this show buckle that's up correct. buckle up for horrible jokes uh, but until then, if you are just itching for content, uh, you can check out the rest of our feed and also the other show that I release on the same feed on alternating weeks with Pete's wife, Marin called Love Ya, where she and I watch an adult rom-com or teen movie and then talk about it. Our last episode was about the Disney Plus original Better Nate Than Ever. And our next episode is about a rom-com whose name I could not remember if you paid me. I think it's The Hating Game. I lied. I I, lied. I think it's The Hating Game. I think you're right that it's The Hating Game. Uh, Also, did I tell you that um, I I walked in for two different moments of Better Nate Than Ever, and both times I turned around within 15 seconds being like, not for me! Uh, Because you hate child actors. I hate child (laughs) actors, and what I hate worse than child actors is children singing. Uh, And this was that. Uh, but, I was going to say that this movie is like <laughs> designed in a lab to not to, be for you. Yeah, and I don't love theater kids. At, like, I mean, I in high school knew a lot of theater kids. They were my friends. Nowadays, I don't want to watch a movie about theater kids. Um, so yeah, designed lab not for me. But you really enjoyed it, and Marin tepidly enjoyed it. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, 
So yeah, for more on that discussion, go check out Love Ya. Uh, you can find all of our social media on the various feeds at DYDYH Podcast, uh, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find me individually on all the places at Magical Martha. And Pete, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture and whatever random things pop into my head. Uh, I'm very impressed right. that you did all that off the top of your head, not uh, I have to read it off our show notes every time. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> well, because I also do this twice as often as you do. That's true. You also did our intro off the top of your head, which is, on the one hand, the elevator pitch that should just be seared into my brain. But I still read it off the script every time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can also follow me on Letterboxd, which is something that I've been pretty oh. active on. Um, my goal... I The goal that I set for myself this year, I'm turning 35, and I said, wouldn't it be interesting if I watched a movie from every year since I was born up until now that I haven't seen yet? Uh, this mission got stymied for a while because I was moving and our TV was not hooked up and then we didn't have internet. So it's been a bit, but I hope to get back to that soon. Uh, so you can see what I'm watching there. And you can also see how I rank all of the movies that we watch for Love Ya. I have a comprehensive list of everything that we've watched there and how I, I rank everything, uh, you know, compared to itself or each other. My my letterbox is also public. I totally forgot about that. Uh, you can follow me there as well. Um, ditto, except for all the Love Ya uh, movies that because I don't watch those. Uh and I don't write reviews because I'm lazy. I don't star my reviews because I'm bad, but I do frequently write reviews, even if they're pithy one-liners, oh. such as recently watched The Godfather, gave it the review of good movie. <laughs> Which you hit under a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? You clicked on it and you saw it and you're like, gosh dang I it. died. <laughs> I laughed so hard I died. <laughs> So for, for more of that insightful commentary, you can follow me on Letterbox as well. Um, yes. my, my handle is technically P. Romberg, but I just checked and you can uh, you can search Pico 3000 there as well because it's tied to my Twitter. Um, so that that'll get you there. I believe that is going to do it for us. We will see y'all in a couple of weeks. And until then, enjoy doing your homework. Class dismissed. Yay! <laughs> I got there. I was like, all right. I had to, wait, wait, wait. No, no. I had to fight. I was fighting every word not to do the love you sign off. I, I was. A, pretty sure about that. B, doing the classic count to ten. Like, see, see if you get there on your own. You did. 